detonation actually went on offensive mission, destroyed the network of the dark side and took all their coins. I think that sends a very clear message. It's the first time that a nation offensive services and cyber warfare capability have been used to destroy a threat actor at a dark side. Welcome to the Rain Insights Podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. The managers of the Colonial Pipeline paid $5 million to free its infrastructure from a cyber attack. The attack disrupted fuel supplies and set off panic buying on the East Coast. It also prompted U.S. President Biden to call for a federal cybersecurity revamp. Will it be enough? Rain founder David Lawrence speaks to Andre Krell, CEO and founder of LifeVars. Krell is recognized worldwide for his digital forensic expertise and his ethical hacking. Let's listen. Okay, Andre, uh, first and always a great honor and privilege. I've had the good fortune to work with you and your team on a number of uh, very interesting cases and a number of sensitive matters. I appreciate your making time for us today. Help us unpack uh, the Colonial Pipeline hack. Uh, what happened? We'll talk about some of the consequences. And obviously, there's some lessons to be learned here. So let me just turn that over to you. Help us understand uh, the incident. Notoriously, David, cyber extortion is one of the three crimes, I would say, the FBI is focusing on. You have a nation state, something what we call cyber extortion, where the ransom and rinks are coming in, and business email compromise. So cyber extortion is not going to go away. And I'll talk about a little bit later what just recently happened in terms of dismantling infrastructure of uh, this group called dark side uh, and also taking over possession of their bitcoins and coin wallets uh, the colonial i would say is a classical example of group that's now in former eastern Bloc. some of the members potentially retired you saw that for example from a maze you see some members of the riot group leaving the sector and primarily because of what happened with uh, uh, Elon Musk and speculation about Bitcoin. So imagine, David, you and I, our revenue went 10x, and we didn't even move clients. Just our clients started, the cash that they accumulated just happened to be 10x. And that gave these criminal actors really good ground to hire people. They openly said it, that thanks to that momentum of the Bitcoin going up and all the hypes, they are able now to hire people or retire. And also new groups are created. So the dark side is this group of individuals who primarily have very significant cyber military training. I mean, you're talking people who are cyber snipers. And they focus on commercial enterprises. What used to be their job to focus on some of uh, the government type of entities, which is more faith, more fair fight. Now they focus on commercial enterprises. In colonial example, I think it's just a truly bad luck because generally these threat actors go after four or five companies that can afford a payment and Colonial be probably been, in my experience on forensic investigation that lifers have done, uh, just that last runner when Bear is chasing and um, they basically got hit. Andre, you've, you've already touched upon a couple themes here. Number one is the rise in ransomware cases, extortion, uh, literally thousands and thousands of U.S. enterprises were hit hard in 2020. 
and colonial is, uh, as you said, uh, maybe only the latest and or at least in one of the more publicized events. These incidents are not going away. Number two, they are very much a low-risk, high-reward endeavor. Uh, they're very small barriers of entry to launching these attacks. And very often people can act, and we'll, we'll get into what just happened in, in the Colonial Pipeline investigation, but very often the actors are acting not only remotely, a high degree of anonymity, and oftentimes with almost complete impunity beyond the reach of the law. And so a reasonable question is, uh, in a business endeavor with a business model that has low risk and high reward, there's no reason to stop. And increasingly, the attacks will become more and more sophisticated and increasingly, you know, more profitable. Have I sort of summarized what the, what the current landscape is like? You are right on the point, uh, David. There is no really reason with the current climate, especially geopolitical climate, for threat actors to stop what they're doing. And Colonia, in my view right now, is actually the first time some evil nation conducted offensive operations into some criminal infrastructure. So what we see is instead of being a nation, nice nation serving a justice through the federal enforcement, there are perhaps some entities and countries that might consider this almost like a declaration on warfare at the operation and deploy also the same way military tactics and tools and uh, techniques and procedures to basically potentially eliminate these threats, these threat actors. Not them physically, but just eliminate the infrastructure and uh, take their money away if possible. So even that, I don't think is going to stop these threat actors, meaning that they will continue. They will just maybe more carefully pick the target. What becomes quite apparent in Colonial is that the ransom they paid is really, in my opinion, low number meaning that even threat actors wanted to get out, just get the pay and move on. The amount of press this got and amount of everything that's happening in society, federal law enforcement involvement, agencies getting on this issue, uh, President Biden is discussing uh, with the Department of Homeland Security what was the ramification of this issue and what is that ramification to the critical infrastructure of the America. It just truly scares them because they reached the magnitude they did not want to reach. Last year, David, we had at the Lifers team a ransom payment of $35 million, which I've signed so many agreements, I can't even tell you who that is, but nothing happened. There was no, outside of, of course, federal law enforcement being involved, there is no press, there's nothing in it, and threat actors got $35 million. So, their luck truly just ran out. They stepped on a mine when they compromised Colonial, and they thought it may be going to go well for them, but truly it didn't and created this amplification. But this is a very rare instance because most of the ransomware victims do not speak what happened to them. Most of the ransomware victims in, in our experience, David, 
don't don't even are publicly found. Like you can't even find um, that they do exist. I would say last year, less than 10% of cases we were even allowed to work with the federal law enforcement. The victims did not even want to work with the federal law enforcement. And we probably touched over 200 cases last year just on ransomware. So you're talking very low number here of victims that uh, actually do even speak about being cyber extorted. And I do think that this colonial put in some general public uh, visibility that this is a serious issue. And just because the threat actor truly stepped on a wrong company that got a lot of publicity. Andre, you've just shared with us a number of very important points. And so I want to um, take a little bit of time to dissect your comments. So number one, uh, the relative amount of money that was paid in ransomware in the Colonial Pipeline case was small compared to what's been going on in this threat environment over the last several years, number one. Number two, what you're sharing with us is that in this instance, the attackers picked the wrong target. And we're going to get into what the response has been because I think a number of people in our, uh, in our audience and the general public will be very interested to hear about what steps were taken by the U.S. government in response to this. Number three, you've also highlighted a prevailing issue in terms of the nature of this threat and the reluctance that companies have to report attacks to the government, share information, etc. Sort of a thesis of We'll pay the ransomware and we'll move on. And so there's work to be done there. I'm also mindful that President Biden signed an executive order that talked about uh, the reporting of these types of attacks to government officials and potentially a, a regulatory requirement down the road that this would have to take place. So let's sort of attack these one by one. I'll start with what was the federal response? Why was this a situation where, an anomalous situation, where they picked on the wrong people, or I, I don't think it was so much they picked on the wrong target, but because of the repercussions of what they did, the gas lines, the anger, you know, the gas shortages, etc., the government had to do something here because this was a, this was an attack that was very much in the open and which impacted the public, not just simply a company. So what was the response here, and why was this situation different? I had a privilege to be with John Felker, who was assistant director at the Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Agency, which is basically arm of a DHS that addresses those issues. And John, around two years ago when we met him and we had a uh, – dinner at a Harvard club with uh, selective uh, CISOs mentioned that they're running massive program, especially in the joint working group for industrial control systems. I'm, and I become a member of that group at the DHS. I can tell you that the government provides a lot of good tools to businesses in critical infrastructure, even free pen tests. You, you can get a lot of help and love from DHS. And that effort started truly maybe three, 
four years ago. So all companies, including Colonial, have this government love and funding they can basically do. So government, in terms of the being proactive, it is proactive. DHS is proactive. It's not true that the government is not proactive. There are working group in it. Um, one of the challenges I would say that these companies are facing is, look, I mean, I started uh, at an agency uh, many years back in former Czechoslovakia. I was after two years deposed in, a new, uh, in the uh, something very similar to the Department of Energy, and I was overseeing two nuclear power plants. They have something what they call the separated networks, David. So in meaning that it's fully isolated. You have to burn a medium and bring to the other network. In terms of Colonial and some of these um, systems, they have a networks that read the data and also that write the data to a pipeline. So the shutdown that you refer to is really needed because if you have systems that are touched, they can write to command and control of industrial control system like a pipeline. Uh, they dictate what the pressure is, what the velocity is. We have no other ability just to basically shut down and restore to a clean state because they just can't tell what threat actors did or even if they didn't do anything, that malware could potentially corrupt the system and some commands could have been issued. So Colonial did have to shut down and restart the system to a clean state. The U.S. government at that point, all what they can do, you can involve the federal law enforcement and help with the remediation of a situation. I mean, the, the damage is done. The threat actor is in. Uh, the forensic firm, uh, our actual one of great firms, Mandiant, uh, that offer also help us and actually refers out some uh, business, so we are very thankful to them, uh, provided forensic services. So I'm sure they're going to get to the bottom of what they call techniques, tactics, and procedures, and it's going to be partially classified what was the initial vector of the compromise into organization and how this threat actor truly get in. Andre, let me just step in one second so the audience understands what you were saying. So first of all, the attack was not on the pipeline itself or the network that controlled the pipeline, but rather it was on the business network. But Colonial had, in an abundance of caution, had to shut down the operational networks because they didn't know how far the attack had spread. And they also, um, what was also impacted was the company's billing system. So it had no way to track fuel distribution and bill customers. And so the entire thing shut down. That is correct, David. So uh, the enterprise network basically that's connected to this industrial control network uh, got affected. And again, if that happened, that, pro that probably wouldn't happen at the nuclear facility because those systems are disconnected fully. And you have to actually transmit some media. That doesn't happen in the energy sector for a lack of maybe convenience and also the way we need to conduct a business. These systems are often connected. But that doesn't mean the security should not be designed in a different way with a zero trust with multiple jump points, right? I think Colonial will have to answer some questions here like how they really connected the systems. But truly what uh, seems to be the case is that the attack propagated through um, Colonial Enterprise Network into the network that was connected to industrial control network through lateral movement of the threat actors. And that's a significant. Now, the government, of course, will assist the investigation and attribution of the threat actors and um, I'm sure the Department of Justice and the FBI are already looking into it, like how potentially make that attribution. My also understanding is that we do actually 
known some of the individuals who had been involved because they previously were part of different organized crime rings in that region where they where they came from. So there there is the government response it is what it is. I think one of the responses is that we can right now say clearly is but we can debate about this is the response that certain nation right we don't know who really at this point of a time actually went on offensive mission, destroyed the network of the dark side and took all their coins. I think that sends a very clear message. It's the first time that a nation, potential a nation, offensive services and cyber warfare capabilities have been used to destroy a threat actor at the dark side. Um, so I think that sends a very clear message that some of these untouchable uh, individuals are untouchable, but their coins and their networks are touchable. And they can be followed and they can, um, can be taken. Let's pause there for a moment because the point that you're making is also a very, very important one. That at least as reported, or as is being reported now, uh, the U.S. government took offensive action against this group. And even if the law enforcement treaties are not in place to arrest and bring the people to justice, at least not yet, there was still a concerted U.S. government response against this group for the attack, which dismantled their network and basically took the proceeds of their criminal activity. That is very correct. So, and if you're talking about the government responses, you basically see now too. Because we used to have Department of Justice with the FBI and Secret Service following the trail of let's be a nice nation and let's serve the justice in, I would say, highly organized and structured way. Um, using offensive forces, I would say it's the first time I actually I've seen it uh, in commercial ransomware scenario. Let's also go to another aspect of this, the process of ransomware and whether a company pays it or doesn't. And obviously guidelines from the government are always not to pay it, and there are some very good reasons. One, it can encourage additional attacks. Two, sometimes you don't get what you're bargaining for. Uh, and that means the release of your, you know, back to you of your data or your systems get freed up. Uh, or even sometimes down the road, what you paid for, they still end up releasing uh, sensitive communications. But that is one of the most critical decisions that a company has to make. And they often have to make it with a great deal of time pressure because business operations have been disrupted and clients are, or customers are relying on you. We saw the disruption that was caused by the colonial attack. And you can just imagine a hospital that needs access to patient records. Uh, you can just imagine a transportation company. You can imagine the city of Atlanta, the city of Baltimore, et cetera, et cetera. Share with us just a little bit about what goes into the calculus of whether to pay ransom or not. And in, at least in your view, whether you think possibly the Colonial Pipeline may be a seminal moment in terms of companies having to report these matters to the authorities and where 
Perhaps the decisions of whether to pay ransomware may not be the company's decision to make on its own. Um, David, we did a great um, webinar with the Rain and Greg about the OFAC issues, paying some of these entities to possible even can. You, know, like you have to get on OFAC exclusion list. You have to be have a license. So I strongly suggest the our listeners to go to that um, webinar that we did, I would say, like four or five months ago about the OFAC issues with the payment. So sometimes it's not even possible without a penalty to pay those criminals. What's important also noted here is that colonial pay, the five million is very low. In my opinion, the ransom probably would be anywhere between 25 to 35 million for a company of their size. Uh, and that gives you a strong indication that trade actor got really uh, just tried to very quickly get out of the situation, realize that this was not the best company to hack because of the massive critical infrastructure issues that this created and tried to get out. But I also want to note, David, based on my experience that would be done in our forensic investigations, um, Colonial had to pay. And the main reason is that if you look at the third-party liabilities they had, if that data was auctioned by threat actors, there would be massive third-party liability to Colonial. And imagine that threat actor potentially, based on our experience, has employee data, all, all third-party contractors' data, all their third-party providers' data. And now this is going to get auctioned on Internet. So Colonial did have to uh, react quickly. This is like having a cyber cancer. You want to live or want to die? You have to make a decision now. What you want? Are you going for the surgery or you don't? You can't stay in the middle. And I think that was the hard decision that Colonial had was, look, we, we probably have to move forward. It's not about restoration. It's about a third-party liability that we are in it. Another very valid point David came in was that the way the Colonial was probably picked because of the limits of the cyber insurance they have. These trade actors are not naive, David. They understand who you are. They understand who I am. They understand also other companies. If you look what happened to CNA Insurance, if you look what potentially could have happened some of the insurance brokers, some of the threat actors are claiming that they understand the limits of cyber insurance of various industry sector companies. And based on my experience, I can tell you, and also Lifer's team, from the incidents that we investigated last two years, maybe five, ten victims a year do not have cyber insurance. Meaning that this threat actor somehow attacking companies where they feel very strongly that a payment is granted. And I would say that a statement from AXA, a French insurance carrier, that basically declare that they're not going to pay ransom anymore as a part of a policy, somehow uh, indicates that there is some correlation to understanding of threat actors and the payments being made. So what's really solicited this payment? The fact that its payment is reimbursed does solicit the payment. And let's put it this way. Most of the policies are not designed to work with the federal law enforcement. Most of the policies here is to just to really limit the damage that you had, like to pay for the damages and move on. And not necessarily pay a lot of attention, hey, who really bumped into my bumper? That's not important. Like, what's important is how much that, Bumper is going to be fixed, and when it's fixed, like, okay, so let's move on. But it's not exactly what the market really wants. 
The market wants, like what you said, stop the payments. Can we stop the payments? Can we have these evil enterprises not taking data and extorting companies for payments? You've highlighted a couple things, and I, I want to underscore these are points that you and I have discussed before and have shared with um, a wide range of our clients. Uh, the AXA announcement, and just for context for the audience, basically ransomware has gotten so out of control in Europe that AXA has declared, and I'm sure be followed by other insurance companies, that they will no longer reimburse for ransomware. They will not pay the ransom. And in some respects, it's easier for a company to decide to pay a ransom knowing it's an insured risk and they've paid the premiums. But the other point you're making, which is a very important one, is that the threat actors size up their victims. They know who has insurance. They know who has the balance sheet. And they choose their victims. The victims for vulnerability, the victims for the ability to repay, the victims for um, what I'll refer to as the sensitivity of their data. So these are not random attacks. Very often they're not random attacks. And Andre, to your point, they just picked the wrong party here because this attack got so much publicity and I would say in large part caused such a massive inconvenience and spoke so loudly about the vulnerability of our infrastructure that it was no longer a cyber attack, but in fact was a political, a geopolitical attack. And so the government had to do something. I think it would be important to remind people, because very often they see it's easy to get lost in the complexity that this is a technology problem. These crimes, the crimes that are being committed, whether it's extortion or bribery or theft or espionage, or it's about efforts of, you know, destruction or to spread disinformation, sabotage. These are all crimes that go back to biblical times. The actors are actually not new actors. They're organized crime. They're individuals or hacktivists or mischievous. They're also state sponsors. And they're people who mean harm. This is a criminal problem. It's a geopolitical problem. And it's uh, the technology comes in simply because the actors can now work remotely with impunity, with a certain degree of anonymity, certainly with scale, relatively inexpensive to do these break-ins. And so, you know, when viewed through this lens, ransomware is, is really just you know, it's kidnapping 101, and instead of people, it's data or business and its operations. And the same issues in trying to figure out, do you pay the ransom or not, are actually parallel to instances of kidnapping where you're wondering, is the person going to be returned safely? If I pay it now, are they going to, is it going to encourage other kidnappers? Why did they target us? Well, because we could pay and we were likely to pay big and pay quickly. And what does it mean 
broadly for the marketplace when kidnappings occur. And we've seen we've seen kidnappings in many countries and kidnaps as a for-profit business. But Andre, I at least have found it helpful to view this through, I'll call it a non-technology lens. Is that a fair way to maybe summarize what the current landscape looks like? David, that is a very good description of what is happening. Look, the extortion is not a new thing. It's just the cyber, the, all what we're changing is the tools and subjects and objects in that extortion, right? Look, look at what was happening in Mexico many years back and what happened to uh, children from Western countries and, uh, and the kidnapping that was really at, at the large. So digitally, we are, everyone is so close. Even, even you are digitally, you're very close. Even David, you are probably, you know, maybe a few hundred miles away from me. But digitally, we are a few milliseconds from each other. And we are all in this one bucket. So, so easy to touch a person in a digital world. So easy to make a person die in digital world. Right? And it doesn't have to be physical death. Like the digitally, person can die four or five times in a year by stolen identity and has to be able to recover itself. The same for the businesses. It's easy to make businesses digitally bleed. Uh, it's easy to spread the cyber cancer as a ransomware. And it's easy to bring those businesses down and take their data. We're living in an era of, I would say, a modern cyber warfare. And you have these gorilla, cyber gorilla gangs that are really on the top of a hill, and it's not easy to get to them. Right? And they don't have, like you said, it's really expensive weapons, but they're very effective. With whatever they have, it really works against enterprises who you know, spend some even significant budget on cybersecurity. And you have these cyber snipers where they are able to pick the target with such a precision that every time they shoot the bullet, they kill. So this is not going to change. And the world is going to continue to be a hostile place because, as you pointed out, it's not a cyber issue. It's a geopolitical issue. You can't extradict. You can't be part of it. Now, sure, there are speculations with nation state involved and left and right, but I can tell you based on my experience, it's completely enough that the government in that country is blindless to criminal, whatever country that is. Imagine that the government knows that a former trained cyber military soldier is now conducting criminal activities to a nation, to the other nation. The fact that they do nothing about it, the fact that they actually go for drinks with him and, and say that he's a hero in that country because doing to the nations that he used to hack, it's enough of a support of a nation state. doesn't even have to be supported by money. doesn't even have to be supported by anything else. And guess what? All the cyber weapons that he has, like you said it, he actually took from the agency where he worked. It's almost like it gave him free cyber Kalashnikov to take the home and free cyber grenade to take the home. And no one is removing that from him. Right? He actually can keep it as long he attacks the nations that are not a friends of the country he's from. An excellent point, Andre, and I'm going to distill that as well. Basically, there is a situation, unlike in other types of crimes, where there is some degree of cooperation with some nations more than others, but there are a number of nations that are harboring, giving at least implicit support, if not actual support, 
encouraging, facilitating, enabling, as long as what they are doing is attacking nations that they view as, on a geopolitical basis, as not their friends. And of course, uh, Andre, and I know you've spoken about this, it's easy for a nation state that's doing this to have plausible deniability and say, we are not involved. This is not our government. It's really a sheltering and that support that these individuals do get. Um, it's also, these individuals, like, look at the colonial, uh, we, we've been working with these threat actors for a while and doing, conducting with our digital forensic unit uh, investigations. I can tell you, they're very good also play decoy game, meaning that they're literally right now coming through your front door. They're attacking your remote system infrastructure, how your employees are connected to your what they call the remote desktop connections, your what they call the Citrix connections, VPN, SSLs, and they are good in circumvented to factor. We actually did, David, with uh, Lifer's offensive services team, how to actually compromise two factor, truly being in the middle of conversation and take over the conversation and solve what they call the tokens and sign in in two factor. And, and the multiple solutions we were able to actually circumvent. So having two factor, it's not also it's not also uh, something that these threat actors would not know how to circumvent or try to break in. And they're really good at it, trust me. They're really good at it. Uh, so they know how to actually take over your remote sessions um, that are coming into the door. And they also drop these few spare phishing emails because everyone believes that a spare phishing is the way to go. And then forensic company come in and trying to investigate. And we had a really large breach in December last year when really large forensic firms got a little bit tricked by the threat actor and they investigated phishing incidents while the threat actor were coming literally through the front door and breaking credentials of the users. So they're also good playing these decoy games where they put the investigators into, into the rabbit holes and uh, follow them wrong trail while they're basically stealing money doing, doing the, their, uh, uh, their own, own, um, own work on the network. And lateral movement, there's a tool called Cobalt Strike that we've seen being used heavily, which is basically memory to memory. So from computer to computer, and leaves very limited footprint on a network. And threat actors are really skilled using this, almost like me talking to you, my brain talking to your brain, and we don't even have this conversation here, but we almost at the same frequency can understand each other. So it's much harder to do actually uh, forensic investigation of uh, these threat actors. So the sophistication that you also point out at the beginning, uh, it's quite high. I mean, these individuals are skilled. Well, Andre, first, uh, thank you for your time today. A conversation we will be continuing. And as usual, uh, you actually left uh, more than enough um, topics for our next conversation, including the ability to circumvent dual factor authentication and again, that's the process by which you log in, you give your password, but there is the secondary confirmation that comes with a text message to your cell phone that you in turn put a you know numeric code back in to further authenticate you, who you are. And so there's now circumvention of that, as well as various other techniques to throw people off the trail uh, when looking for um, the penetrations. So I look forward to having that continued conversation. 
we'll have to wait and see whether this was a seminal moment. Uh, Andre and I have spoken about this entire presidential uh, election cycle with all the debates that occurred and the topics that came up. Andre, maybe you'll correct me. I just don't remember a single question about protecting this country from cyber threats and cyber attacks and protecting the critical infrastructure. And yet it is a very, very existential threat for us as we're starting to see. That is very correct, David. Actually, one of the GRU officials noted and uh, Russians were attacking hospitals at a time during the presidential debates. And they were saying that uh, they kind of speculated that for it's neither interest of any presidential candidates to actually open that question. It also goes NATO Article 5, um, declaring of cyber warfare War, or right. declaring the capabilities on uh, what really would be active warfare, what kind of operations would be done. So uh, you, you touch on a very interesting topic. Well, that's above my pay grade, uh, and, and I'm sure there are some geopolitical <laughs> correspondents who understand those issues better than I do. But the fact that they did not discuss any of that, it was a little bit uh, concerning, I would say, in the favor of other nations that uh, even candidates don't want to open the topics that perhaps would not give them really good uh, election results. Some of the best experts, and you've been among the ranks, have been warning about the vulnerabilities as we continue to put more and more on our digital platforms, put out more devices that have vulnerabilities. We'll have to see whether this is a turning point here, but something is going to have to give. So, Andre, thank you for spending time with us, and this will be part of a, a continuing conversation. So we look forward to the next one. Thank you again. David, thank you really for having me and looking forward to be part of the RAIN podcast. Andre Krahel is CEO and founder of LifeHars. He's also a member of the RAIN Network. The hub of RAIN's network is the democratization of information and expertise. Subscribe to RAIN's core membership today and let RAIN power your business to success. Learn more at RAINNetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E Network.com. Thanks for listening.